Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. For the past three years, I have been sitting here in this strange, quiet, little glass box that is the OnPoint Studio, and I've been listening to you and how you've been weathering this pandemic. And I am utterly grateful to you. From across the nation and almost every walk of life, you've bravely shared what you lost. Lost loved ones, lost learning, lost jobs, lost homes, lost trust and faith in the common enterprise that is the United States. Here are a few of the stories you shared. I see that a nurse died in New York City um, this week, and in the same hospital, they're showing pictures of nurses wearing trash cans for their PPE. So I went to the hospital, they admitted me, I said goodbye to my husband, they wouldn't allow him in. And I pretty much don't remember very much after that, but um, I do remember them saying, we're gonna put you on a ventilator. And then I remember, I'm thinking, I'm not going to live. I'm, I'm not leaving this place. This new collective grief that people are just figuring out how to name, that they're waking up going, I, I'm crying, I don't know why, or I, there's this heaviness. And I will always remember that night because Jonah said to me as he was going to bed, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to go crazy if I don't go to school. You know, he was, I think, 11 years old at the time, and he was right. You know, due to COVID-19, a lot of shelters have kind of closed down or they limited the amount of people that are allowed into the facilities. So I was just worried about even having anywhere to go with me, having my kids. I feel bad for my family because I feel like my medicine is consuming all the resources that we have. And it's vital. Um, and these are the problems that millions are facing across the country. You shouldn't have to decide between in a pandemic and an emergency and something you did not create. You shouldn't have to decide between your vital medication and food or rent or whatever your child may need. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Today marks the first day the United States moves forward out of the shadow of the federally declared pandemic public health emergency, which ended at midnight last night. The pandemic story isn't over, of course, but I also believe that loss, too, is not the end. So today, we're going to check back in with some of the people who joined us in the past three years to hear how they're doing now and how they're moving forward. We'll start with Valerie Ewald. She's a retired nurse from the UCLA Santa Monica Medical Center. She was a nurse for 24 years. We first spoke with her back in January of 2021, when Los Angeles County was experiencing a massive surge in COVID cases. So here she is, back in 2021. You just always are wondering how it's gonna be. Am I gonna walk into it and find out that we couldn't get enough staff for the shift and that um, we're gonna be going over the uh, California state racial law? Is the ER gonna be hit with this surge of patients and are there gonna be codes throughout the hospital that we're not really sure how we're gonna to get to all of them? It's really, it's so hard. I mean, I feel like I've, bro- I'm not, not, I'm a broken record. I'm sure that I 
over and over, you keep hearing nurses saying, and not just nurses, all healthcare professionals, it's real, it's real. Um, if you can just hold on, just hold on. <laughs> well, Valerie joins us once again. She's in Los Angeles. Valerie, welcome back to On Point. Hi, Magna. Thanks for having me. How does it feel listening to what you said back in 2021? It feels really weird. Um, it feels really strange, especially since now I did retire kind of early. I'm 58. I always thought I'd work till early 60s. And the last couple, those last couple of years drained me too much and stopped working last December. And um, it's really strange now sitting in my living room. Usually I, I, this would, I would be at work right now. Um, and I'm just chilling out and I'm still thinking about all my coworkers who are still there. Um, it, it's very strange, but I think you mentioned before, there is still a loss and there's still, it's changed all of us, I think, in this country, unfortunately, not necessarily for the good. So do you think you wouldn't have retired early if there had been no COVID pandemic? I don't think so. Um, I think I would have held on. Um, and a lot of my coworkers are looking at getting out earlier than they used to. I mean, I think there's always jokes when someone retires that younger people say, oh, I want to retire. I'm, I, you're so lucky. But people in their 30s are saying that to me. Seriously, like they're looking to get away from the bedside. Other nurses who really should expect to work another 10 or 15 years are are checking their accounts. And it's mm. it's this, the the... The environment of work has, it's, it's a different thing, apparently. Well, it was different for me and what they're all saying. Yeah. Just more adversarial. Um, people seem unhappy. Do you mind if I ask, um, just to sort of get a sense as to what you experienced, especially doing those really big surges that happened in L.A. County? I mean, uh, how much death did you see? How many people did you see die? Um, we saw a lot. Um, and what we saw was that the, the sad part was that the families couldn't be in the room with them. You know, we had such strict visitation rules. They, they changed at times and we would sometimes have elaborate, um, rules where, uh, you know, one person could come in for an hour at the end if someone was passing, but they had to agree to self-quarantine for two weeks afterward, which we, there's no way for us enforcing. And then, there was always so much um, just adversarial and, um, you know, um, talk back and forth between we, we healthcare workers and families about those kind of things. And I don't know, maybe at the beginning of the pandemic, obviously, we didn't know about the pathogen. We didn't know about transmission. You know, maybe we could have been less strict and let more people in as long as they were um, in proper PPE. That's one thing that really bothers me is so many people dying without their families or maybe just with one person mm -hmm. in there for a brief period of time. And and just the, the negative communication that quite often happened between we healthcare workers and the families, because of course they were always trying to come in and see their families. That, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. How do you think you're a different person now than you were in January of 2020? And if so, how have you changed? Um, you know, it, 
you know, it might seem silly, but really I am trying to, I'm trying to enjoy my own good friends and my family's more, my family more nature. I mean, there was a time when they'd close the parks and beaches and you could just go for a walk. So, I mean, I am trying to really enjoy my life more. Um, and that's, that's true. Um, and I'm trying to be nice to any people, just everyone, especially customer service people, <laughs> because I think it's just hard for everybody everywhere. Yeah. Um, it doesn't sound silly at all. <laughs> Enjoying no. the elemental aspects yeah. of being alive seems very sensible to me, Valerie. It's a totally no. understandable response to what you've been through. I mean, I wonder, you were talking about many of your colleagues also thinking about leaving the profession or retiring early. I mean, are there are there lessons that you want the entire medical community or healthcare community in this country to to learn and take forward? Yeah, I mean, we need our we need better public health, and uh, it's all about the money. But we need better funding. Um, we need more nurses, more doctors, um, more respiratory therapists. We need more social workers, counselors. So much that was one thing that we really needed during this time, um, and you know, so much preventive care. But I, you know, I always think if the schools had been better funded, it would have been easier for more of them to open up earlier. But um, that's 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 my takeaway is really preventative care too, better mm-hmm. public health. Mm-hmm. How are you doing overall? I mean, how's life, and what do you want to do? What are you thinking about for yourself in the next couple of years? Oh, you know, I do want to volunteer in some sort of healthcare um, facility. This year has been just to get the house in order and do some stuff. But um, I there's a free clinic in my my little town, and I want to um, do that maybe go on some medical missions. So, yeah. I'm going to keep busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, in that uh, that moment that we played when you joined us back in 2021, um, you, you said that uh, um, you keep hearing nurses and healthcare professionals just saying, like, just hold on, just hold on to themselves, right, to get through, through every single day. Um, can you can you talk more about that? Um, yeah, I, I there was just we knew it, there had to be an end in sight, and um, you know you can get by with it. You know that's unfortunate. One quite often nurses during their they do twelve hour shifts say it's only twelve hours. It's only twelve hours. Um, we can do it. You know, one one task at a time, and it will get better. I think I also was talking just about you know just the community of the world, hold on, we're going to get through this. You can keep masking up for a while and keep trying, get vaccinated if you are okay with that. I, I think I was feeling with that too. Just mm-hmm. it, it, it would be, it, it'll be over. Yeah. But unfortunately, like it's changed us all and the divisiveness and, you know, are you yeah. a vaxxer? Are you anti-vaxxer? We're all in these little cubes. It's you know, and afraid to admit that everyone's afraid to admit they were wrong or that the choices might not have been the best choice, you know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, that, well, you know, that, that, makes, that bothers me. So we've just got a few seconds left, Valerie, but uh, it makes me remember that back in the beginning of the pandemic, um, there was a lot of uh, celebration and honoring of healthcare workers as heroes. Yeah. L- looking back at that now, what do you think? still say thank you a lot to me and that's amazing but um and that was good um but 
but you know, pizza parties and, and the rallies on the street really aren't what we need best. We need better um, health policy in this country, you yeah. know, um, for not just nurses, yeah, for all healthcare workers. Mm. So we can provide, you know, safe care and, you know, keep us all as healthy as we can be. Well, Valerie Ewald, she was a nurse for 24 years, 22 of those years at UCLA Santa Monica Medical Center. Valerie, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. More in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're checking in with a few of the many Americans who shared their stories across the past three years of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're going to find out how they're doing now, what's changed in their lives, and what they hope for as the country moves forward. Jack Beatty, On Point's news analyst, has been listening along with us. And hello there, Jack. Hello, Meghna. So, you know, we just heard from Valerie uh, Ewald, the now-retired nurse in Los Angeles. Just just your thoughts, Jack. Well, uh, I was so glad that you... Uh, saluted her as an epitome of the of the hero heroine of this story uh, can't be said enough. Uh, people on the front lines, people whose whose motto you can hear it, just hold on, uh, conveys the desperation and the uh, and the gravity of of what they were dealing with. Um, you know, I'm I'm struck with the metaphor you've used again and again. Uh, in discussing the pandemic, that it was a mirror, a mirror of the American uh, condition. And here are just four things I think we saw in that mirror. Uh, You know, uh, the the neglect of public health, uh, one statistic, only three percent of the three trillion dollars spent on health care in the United States on the eve of the pandemic, only three percent went into public health services, which are you know, neighborhood clinics, uh, the whole panoply of services, uh, communications and so on. Only 3% of that. It's improved some, but not enough. Second, the dearth of life-saving supplies. Mm -hmm. In March 2020, the government had 13,009,000 N95 masks stockpiled. Now we have 352 million. In, ni- in March 1920, t- 2020, 
the government had 12,000 ventilators ready. Now it has 150,000. So there's been improvement there. Three, when we look in that mirror, we see the lack of trust, trust in government and social trust. One study published in The Lancet found that, uh, hypothesized that if levels of trust in government worldwide were what they are in Denmark, there would have been 13 percent fewer uh, infections. And if social trust worldwide were what it is in Denmark, infections might have been cut in half. That is to say, if people believed in one another, showed solidarity in one, in one another. But the crisis in social trust uh, cost us and cost us dearly. And finally, did we see, do we see in the story of the pandemic the future? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, especially if it turns out, we may never know, this was a lab leak to begin with. Because what is that a metaphor for? It's a metaphor for Frankenstein. It's a metaphor for science poisoning the well somehow. It's a, and, and think of that in terms of the world of AI. It, you know, a lab leak can create millions of deaths. What can some sort of leak from a future laboratory do to us? It's a very, very frightening uh, possible reality we see in that mirror. Hmm. Point well taken, Jack. You know, I'm thinking your your uh, warning about uh, uh, the Frankenstein possibility of of science and technology is uh, should be heard by everyone. But you know, also I'm thinking about in the in the COVID pandemic, we saw about the possibilities of science, the positive possibilities of science when uh, when a, a country bands together, in you know the the very very rapid development of uh, the vaccines for COVID. So that's just you know, it's like it, it, the mirror is exactly right. The mirror reflects the best of us and the worst of us, Jack. And and if I could also just take a quick second here, you mentioned uh, the low stockpiling. Um, of supplies and the importance of trust, just to trumpet our own horn a little bit. If people, uh, if the people um, subscribe to the On Point podcast and you go into our podcast feed, you will see that we actually spoke with the man who used to manage the nation's strategic stockpile. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we talked with him about what's actually in it, why it uh, may not be as uh, comprehensive a stockpile. Um, as we needed at the time. That was a really interesting show. And of course, we did an entire series about the importance of trust, as you point out again. So, Jack, um, stick with me because I want to talk with you a little bit later in the show again about um, sort of the, the health, the political and social health of the nation as we move forward a bit later in the show. But let's get back to checking in with some of the people who shared stories with us over the past three years. One of them is special needs teacher Chris Guerreri. He's from Jacksonville, Florida, and he talked with us in the summer of 2020. And at that time, Florida was gearing up to send students and teachers back to school in person in August. And here's how Chris felt about it then. Well, here in Florida, where the pandemic is out of control, it's, it's terrifying. And so when children report on August 20th, I can't guarantee I'll be in the classroom. All right. Well, we checked in with Chris again to see whether he did end up going back to school. And here's what he told us. Well, of course, I went back and it was the hardest school year I'd ever had. To give you a little scale, before I was teaching two classes, 
our kids would rotate from teacher to teacher. Well, the first year back from COVID, I was teaching all the classes. So I was teaching all the subjects that the, all the teachers were doing. And we were self-contained. Our kids never left the classroom. That wasn't a good year for anybody. Each desk had their plexiglass shields on. I was instructed to teach from my desk. We were six feet apart. We didn't have electives. I mean, it was a miserable year for everybody. And, you know, how much learning can go on when both the teacher and the students are miserable? I just feel like my district and my state really said to me, you know, you're just a widget. You know, you're a easily replaceable cog. Good luck. So that's teacher Chris Guerreri in Jacksonville, Florida. He's been teaching for 22 years now, and he also told us that he just got his teacher's license recertified, but it's going to expire in four years. And he told us this week that when it does expire, he's done with teaching. All right. Well, let's move to another listener who spoke with us back in May of 2020. She's Alexis Brown, and she had just graduated from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, with a degree in sociology and urban studies. Again, she talked to us in May of 2020, and here's what she said. First of all, the dream was to walk across the stage on April 30th. That was the goal. That was the plan. I really wanted to get an internship with Detroit. Um, like I said, I graduated in urban studies, so I wanted to get um, an internship in like their planning department or one of their departments, and then eventually get you know a job with the city of Detroit. Uh, so that was the dream. Uh, but you know, with the pandemic, things didn't really go as planned. Well, Alexis Brown joins us once again from Detroit, Michigan. Alexis, welcome back to On Point. Hi, thank you for having me. Hey, so how did it feel to hear yourself back from 2020 just now? Um, it's, it kind of feels like an out-of-body experience. Um, one, I sound like a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, it kind of brings back those um, those memories of uh, and kind of like the sadness of not being able to walk across the stage after, you know, committing four years to a degree and um, not having that, you know, that celebration. Mm-hmm. So what happened then after you graduated into that summer of 2020 and, and later that year? Um, It was... It was a it was a little depressing. Honest, um, was you know like like uh, everyone knows, you know, kind of stuck in the house because you know everything closed down, um, and not really getting to experience you know my my summer, um, but as well as just like the like I said the cele- the celebratory experience of graduating college. It kind of kind of felt like everything was on hold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how did you see your city change around you in 2020, 2021? Because you wanted to work for the city of Detroit, right? Right. Yes. Yes, I did. Um, it kind of felt like a ghost town a little bit, um, being out and just not seeing not seeing people, not seeing as as vibrant it, as it is. Um, seeing like construction projects pause, uh, so like revitalization projects kind of pause. It, it kind of felt like a ghost town. A ghost town. Okay. Uh, and how does Detroit feel now? Um, it feels more vibrant, to be honest, as, as things have been lifted and people are back outside, it seems like, um, like a new life has been given, given to the city. Okay, good. So tell us more then about what, um, you ended up doing with your, your, your life and career, because I remember back in May of 2020, um, when we first spoke with you, you were planning to get, um, a master's degree, um, since you just finished your undergraduate, uh, degree. Did you, did you go on to graduate school? 
Um, so I so I did go. Uh, I went for a semester and completed the semester and decided that it was not something I wanted to continue to pursue. Um, for a, a big reason of it being because it was online, it was mm-hmm. virtual, and I just did not enjoy the whole virtual learning experience. Um, which then gave me the opportunity to just kind of sit and think, okay, is this really what I want to get a master's in? Uh, but it really was because of the virtual, you know, the virtual learning. Yeah. Um, and so what'd you pivot to then after that? Um, so I still, I haven't, I haven't gone back since then. I, mm. I'm still trying to, trying to decide on, um, you know, on a major, on a, on a career that I, I really want to do. I don't want to just jump into something. Um, so I haven't, I haven't done the pivot yet. I'm thinking about public policy, um, part of like education policy, just part of how I saw, you know, the education system go through COVID and how to handle it. I kind of want to, want to go into that maybe and, and change the way in which we do education. Well, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I understand that um, you actually did some work as a paraprofessional at an elementary school, right? Yes. Can you, yes, t- yeah. w- can you tell me what mm-hmm. you saw during that time? Um, I saw a lot of, so yes, I was at an elementary school in the city of Detroit. Um, and so I just saw the disadvantages that um, our students were getting due to COVID, but also just because of the education system to begin with. So like not having, you know, ad- adequate technology to do the virtual learning, um, just seeing how kind of behind they were to begin with before before that. And then with the COVID happening, so not being able to get, um, you know, just receive the learning that they need to receive in the way they need to receive it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then, I mean, how did that... Uh... Uh, have an effect on what you I think you right now you're a student engagement coach for for uh, 16 to 21 yes. year olds yeah yes uh, yep I'm a student engagement coach uh, at a nonprofit and seeing working with 16 to 20 year olds and seeing where they are at as well I can tell how um, the education system has let them down due to COVID but also before that especially with being in the city of Detroit and knowing that um, our students and our kids do not receive, you know, the best education they could compared to um, schools, you know, that we are adjacent to in the suburbs. So just seeing how the education system has let them down pre and post COVID. Hmm. So do, so does do you feel like they're even more disadvantaged now because of, um, you know, like you you were just talking about the challenges of getting an online education, uh, resources. I mean, do you see them uh, as as struggling yes. more? Yeah. Tell me more. Very much so. I, so I actually work for an alternative. Uh, I work with kids at alternative high school. Um, so they are students that have been kicked, essentially kicked out of uh, Detroit public uh, schools due to either, you know, bad behavior, but a lot of them because they were behind in credits due to COVID. So they're projected to, gr- they're seniors and were projected to graduate, but they only have a sophomore or junior standing because they weren't able to complete their courses due to COVID. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have the right technology or they you know, they couldn't get on, they weren't passing. So now they're, you know, 17, 18 at an alternative high school, you know, wanting to graduate and feel like they should be, but they only have sophomore credits. Mm, I see. Well, so then what would you, for, you know, if you had a chance to speak to, uh, you know, Michigan State uh, elected leaders or the, you know, the head of the Department of Education in the mm-hmm. United States, I mean, what would you tell them? Um, I would tell them that we have to do better for our, for our for our kids but tell them that we need to create a more more individualized like strategy for our students we can't do a one size fit all because it doesn't 
um, and just providing more resources. They need they need more resources. It's not it's not fair that they don't receive the resources that the basic resources to begin with. They need more resources on top of that. They really deserve deserve you know equity over equality. Hmm. Hmm. Well, um, Alexis, I hope you don't mind me asking, but um, y- you got COVID a couple of times, and I believe you lost a family member from it, also. Yes, I did. Your uncle. Yes. Yes, I lost my uncle. I, honestly, in the beginning of it, before um, I want to say he was one of the one of the first and the handfuls um, that we lost in Michigan. Um, and, you know, they were trying to say, you know, we don't know if it was COVID, might've been complications, but he was young. He was, he was young. So it didn't really make, make a lot of sense. So from that, it kind of made me, I would say for my age group, more weary or more, more on, more cautious than a lot of other people in my age group. Um, because I saw firsthand, you know, that this, you know, this is as real as they say it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yes, I, I, I did end up getting COVID twice, but luckily I feel like it wasn't as bad as the stories I heard because I had the vaccine and I had the booster. Um, but I still re- I still went through some horrible, you know, hor- the horrible symptoms. Yeah. Um, do you think the pandemic and all that you've experienced because of it uh, has changed you as a person, Alexis? Yes, I think I think I think. Uh, yeah, it definitely has. It, it will um, be wrong for me to say it has. It definitely has changed me. Um, I would say a little more cautious, um, definitely just more intentional with how I spend my time and who I spend my time with, like making sure, you know, I'm I'm with people that I feel loved and valued because time, you know, time we just don't know. It's, it, it's, it's like tomorrow was not promised. Mm-hmm. And how do I put this? What does the way that the United States handled the pandemic, you know, politically, mm-hmm. economically, socially. Um, what does that make you think about your country? Honestly, the first word comes first word that comes to mind is disappointed. D- disappointed and 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 angry. Um, because I just feel like it was not handled well. And and if things would have moved a little bit swifter, a lot of a lot less people would have died. And I just feel like the re the resources weren't as available for um us in urban areas. And so what do you want from uh future leaders in terms of when the the next pandemic or even before the next pandemic? <laughs> yeah. Um honesty, transparency, um and I don't just just better ways at, at, at um, getting the information across. I just had it. It was just, you couldn't, you didn't know what was real and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. You didn't know. And that, was, yeah. and that was scary. Yeah. Yeah. Do you still have hope for yourself, Alexis? I hope you do. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I have a lot of hope for myself. Okay. Well, Alexis Brown, she's now a student engagement coach for 16 to 21 year olds uh, for the nonprofit uh, SER in Metro Detroit. We spoke with her first in May of 2020 when she had just graduated from Wayne State University. Alexis, all the best to you. And we have hope for you in your future as well. And thank you for coming back to the show. Thank you so much. Back in a moment. This is On Point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we are checking in with several of the many Americans who shared their stories over the past three years of the COVID-19 pandemic. We heard from folks from all walks of life and all across the country. And um, as the pandemic public health emergency in the United States is officially over as of yesterday, we wanted to know how people are doing now and what they want for their lives moving forward. So here's another person that we first heard from back in April of 2020, Pavlos Sierros. He's the owner of Forget Me Not. It's a popular bar in New York City's Lower East Side. And again, when we spoke with him back in April of 2020, at that time, he told us that he had to get creative to keep his business running. I was sitting with my partner, Derek, having, um, I think it was a whiskey. So we're thinking of what to do. And um, turns around and says to me, why don't we just do a grocery store? Plus, my brother owns a big supermarket in Astoria, Queens. That's where I grew up. Uh, so I figured, you know, I have the supply chain anyway. Might as well just do it, you know. So when I went across the street, I got a bunch of plywood. So I brought in the lumber, and we just built the shelves, and that was it. There's definitely a Trader Joe's and a Whole Foods within 10, 15 minutes for me. But then there's huge lines, and some people just don't want to wait. They just come, get their stuff. But obviously, I can't compete with the big chains, you know what I mean? We do our best. But also, we have full liquor. They don't. We sell a lot of gin and tonics to go, Bloody Marys, margaritas, whiskeys, you know, some you can't get in a big store. All right. So that was Pablo Sierros uh, when we spoke with him back in April 2020. And of course, New York was in that like long running lockdown at the time um, and suffering a lot from COVID. So how's Pavlos doing now? Well, we just caught up with him yesterday and he told us that it was not easy during that time to keep his business afloat. But because of the pandemic, he's now changed his entire business model. We were losing money. Even delivery, we weren't even breaking even. But you know what? You got to keep it going. You got to keep it going. Once you stop, it's really hard to get it back. A lot of people stayed home. We never stayed home. We just kept pushing. We worked for free and negative for so long. You know, eventually you come out of it. But it got really bad because all I had is restaurants. Because I had all my eggs in one basket, and the government came one day and said everything shut down. Everybody in construction, and this, that, that, people were making money, and they were able to survive. I wasn't. So I'm not doing this ever again, ever. Now I diversified everywhere. So if something happens, because I guarantee you they're going to do this again. So now you do more businesses, different businesses, 
Living conscious, so nobody can say nothing to you. So what does uh, diversified mean for Pavlos now? Well, he has four restaurants in New York City. He's also just opened up a brewery in Greece and a few hotels in Greece as well. So Pavlos Sierros there from New York City's Lower East Side. Well, let's now turn back to Florida, where Erin Bailey lives. She's a single mom of four kids ages 13, 11, 10, and 9 from West Palm uh, Palm Beach, Florida. And we first spoke with her in October of 2020. And here's what she told us. Before everything started, we were doing well. I had actually started my own lawn care business and also did things like car detailing, car washing, house cleaning, you know, basically any kind of odd job. I had went out and just wanted to do you know, my own business and got the business cards and started doing the advertising online. And and then once the quarantine started, people didn't want anyone around. You know, they didn't want anyone near their property. And then also it would be hard because the schools had closed, which was my child care. So finding someone to watch the kids was really impossible. I mean, regular child cares were closed as well, but I couldn't have afforded one of those. So that was Erin Bailey back in October of 2020. And she joins us once again on the show. Erin, welcome back to On Point. Thank you. So uh, after we talked to you in October 2020, you were you were able to start a GoFundMe page that helped uh, bring in enough money to keep a a roof over your head. Um, What's happened since then? Actually, we ended up having to stay in an Airbnb for like five months until we found something because we had got evicted before the GoFundMe helped us. Like it happened right when it was starting up. So we were (laughs) living in an Airbnb for like five months and it was very stressful. And we finally were able to, thanks to the GoFundMe, buy a mobile home because the rent down here had skyrocketed like I'm talking doubled, tripled since before the pandemic. Um, But that has had its own issues. (laughs) The GoFundMe helped us get the place and then survive for the first year. But every, it's like the resources that they have to help you. They've been great. They've, they've helped us, you know, survive until now, like literally now, (laughs) but they didn't really give enough warning that they would be getting cut off. And so those of us who don't know how to use the system that well weren't well enough informed. Oh, okay. Because of the, I mean, the, the child tax credit had ended before, but now the COVID relief money and all the other supports that came along um, with that public health emergency declaration. Uh, Aaron, are you worried about possibly getting evicted again? Uh, yeah, we are actually in the process getting evicted from your mobile home yep even though we own it so you you could be getting evicted from the place where the mobile home is yes but then they would be able to actually keep the mobile home and sell it which it's worth way more than what i owe so it it's better for them if we get evicted, because then they can make that profit. What are you going to do, Erin? <laughs> I have no idea right now. I literally, 
um, during the pandemic, like after that first year, we lost our car. It broke down. It was too expensive to fix. Um, I couldn't find anything within walking distance. And I couldn't ride the bus because then I would be too far away in case something happened to the kids. So I just now got a car this month because of taxes. And was getting ready to get us back on our feet. And we got hit by, uh, well, the funding has ended, you know, best of luck. And like, all, you know, the churches that also do assistance, most of them are saying that they can't help once you're in the process. But I thought that's what the assistance was for. Mm-hmm. And then like Adopt-A-Family, they're another organization. They said, oh, well, we can only help you if you make this amount of money every month. And I'm like, well, people who make that amount of money every month wouldn't need your help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the people who who are struggling that need the help. So it makes no sense to me. I don't know. Erin, um, what aspect of the pandemic really had the biggest impact on, on you and your family? Because, I mean, we, we focus a lot on the disease of COVID itself, but so much else happened to people as well. I mean, how... How did it change your life? What part of the pandemic changed your life? Well, it was hard enough on the kids being cooped up for so long. Because when you put four siblings together in one roof for a long time, they want to tear each other apart and still love each other at the same time. So it's like sweet and sour patch kids. You know what I mean? Like one minute they're fighting and the next minute they're cuddled up watching a movie. But I mean, it's it's just really hard on them when they can't get out and do things and and play and socially interact. It makes it hard when they are finally able to get out there. It's almost like they sort of either go crazy or they wall up and they're afraid to talk to other kids for a while. I had two that was wild and out and then two that were more shy and it was harder for them to make friends again. So shutting them up for so long was definitely not good for them. And then plus, you know, they see their mom trying to struggle and, and trying to find work and trying to find these different ways to make money, you know, for things they need because kids need things all the time, whether it be they want to do cheerleading like normal kids in their class or, you know, my son wants to play football. All these things cost money when we're already struggling Like we had to go a period without our food stamps because the process to get any help is ridiculous. It's like they Mm. make it so hard. So some people will just give up. How do you make it through every day, (laughs) Erin? You just, you got to take it a day at a time and hope that you don't go crazy. (laughs) Every day is different and it's always a struggle. I mean, literally just in the last six months, in order to get any help, I would have to sit on the phone for four to six hours on hold every day. That was time I could have been out trying to do an odd job or trying to find a normal job closer to the house. So I would have to take time away from my kids when they got home once the the call centers had closed to go out and try to find that work when I could have been spending it with my kids. Mm-hmm. But they make it so hard. Aaron. Uh, given all that you uh, have experienced and are continuing to to live with, uh, how, 
how do you think your country and its leaders did in this pandemic? How did they did they do enough to to help you? And what's your message to them? I mean, I really believe that most of them were doing the best that they could do. And they don't realize how hard it is to get the assistance that they're trying to give to us because they're in a position where they don't need it. So they don't see firsthand how hard it is and how emotionally taxing it is to go through those processes. So they have no idea. Like, I know that they think, okay, this is great. It's going to help all these people. But in reality, like (laughs) a lot of people who need the help don't end up getting the help because Mm -hmm. either it's too complicated or there's too many little restrictions that make no sense. It's like, oh, well, you you don't make enough money, so you don't qualify for this. Well, that's the point. I don't make enough money, so I do need this. Mm. Like, I, I really wish that they would spend more time actually going along with family or people who have to go through these programs to see how hard it is to really get them. And if they could make that process a little bit easier or change it in a way that they won't require it so often, then I think that would really help everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, Erin Bailey in West Palm Beach, Florida, mom of four. Erin, first of all, um, thank you so much for coming back to the show. And um, I, I honor your strength and your resilience, um, even as I know things were really, really tough. So I'm so grateful that you were willing to share your story again with us. Thank you, Erin. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, um, You know, I want to say that uh, what we do here in the voices of all these people who came back to speak with us is a core kind of resilience. I still believe in that. But at the same time, it's a resilience that's being tried and tested and taxed by a political system around them that seems to be failing, Jack. Yes. uh, You know, you asked Alexis Brown uh, uh, what about you know what what was her reaction to the national response? She said disappointed. She had so much to be disappointed about. From start to finish, this has been a politics poisoned pandemic. You know, with with Trump, the politics of chaos. With Biden, the politics of moving on. Uh, you know, Trump was a unique comorbidity. No way that could ever be repeated and the and the damage and the death impossible to calculate but but even worse is that trumpism has cast its shadow on how we will respond to the next pandemic over 30 state legislatures have passed laws limiting the public health powers to deal with pandemics. They've banned governors from imposing mask mandates, closing schools, testing for the virus. That's a legacy of the politics of chaos under under Trump. Under Biden, in some ways, it's been worse. Uh, deaths have soared since Biden's become president, three times as many deaths. And yet this is after a uh, vaccine was available. Where were the public health messages? Where were the TV campaigns gone? And what did you hear from the president as early as uh, July 4th, 2021? He said, you know, we, we're, we're declaring independence from the virus as, 
as the strain of the day was was flourishing and as Omicron was on the horizon, thousands dying and just and even worse with Biden. You know, in September last year on on the 60 Minutes, he said uh, the pandemic is over. And the Republicans immediately said, wait a minute, you've got a bill here for twenty two million billion dollars to prepare us for the next uh, uh, pandemic and to, to research and development of the next generation vaccines and so on. But why should we pass that since you say the pandemic is over? They didn't pass it. Our future has been limited by the president's uh, loose lips. So the politics of moving on and the politics of chaos have cost us dearly. Mm. You know, I also think about the fact that the pandemic was a historic, was and is a historic crisis. But it also, thinking about that mirror, it gave us the opportunity in the midst of that crisis to really make some fundamental changes. Uh, you know, even in just in, in as uh, critical systems as you heard Aaron Bailey talking about, just getting regular assistance, food, food security assistance, for example. She just talked about how it still takes her as much time now as it did before the pandemic. And that is time that's taken away from her looking for a job or being with her kids. So I think the fundamentals uh, of America were reflected back to us in that mirror of the pandemic. And I'm not sure we made much change based on what we saw, Jack. Um, do you think we can? We've just got about 10 seconds, Jack. Well, I suppose one always has to hope, but the track record is very, very bad. Who would have predicted this this reaction against vaccine, against science? This is just uh, worrisome beyond anything we've seen. <laughs> well, you know, we're still going to keep holding that mirror up <laughs> to the nation as much as we can, pandemic or no. Jack Beatty, thank you very much. This is On Point.